Welcome to another episode of the Silk and Steel podcast. I'm your host Carl Za. Today we have another episode in our new series on tech war between U.S. and China because this is a hot topic right now.、Uh, previously, I have Mr. T on the show,、uh, and he has been a hit.、Um, so today, I decided to invite somebody else. A longtime observer of the China tech space,、um, I I wanted to bring him into the show because、um, you know he he brings, whereas Mr. T is more knowledgeable、um, in terms of、uh, U.S. tech.、Uh, I I feel the,、uh, my new guest. I will introduce him as Mr. G. Mr. G is、uh, more familiar with the tech development inside China because a lot of you were. Interested to know what would be the Chinese response. So I decided to bring Mr. G to give us a, 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 another perspective. So welcome to the show, Mr. G. Oh,、uh, thank you, Carl.、Uh, it's good to be on.、Uh, so I have been anticipating this for a long time because I, I know you,、uh, both you and Mr. T, for a while, and I know you have a. A slightly different perspective from Mr. T on the U.S.-China tech competition,、uh, to say the least. So, but but before we get into that,、um, I like to、uh, just kind of、uh, discuss about what do you think、um, is going to be the you know China's response to the latest. Uh, round of、uh, you know moves made by Trump administration. I'm, I'm talking about the sanction on the Chinese semiconductor chip maker、uh, SMIC. SMIC, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay.、Um, so, so I think it's really important to kind of understand how China's general response to the tech war has been, and it's not. Any, it's it's not very reactive actually, and and I think it's important to understand why it's not reactive.、Um, I think、um, if you're if you've been watching the Chinese tech industry for a very long time,、um, one thing that kind of comes、uh, that becomes very apparent is that、um, th- there's always been an anticipation of the possibility that you know these sorts of、um, sanctions from the U.S. or from other countries that China is trying to. Catch up to in terms of its technological capabilities.、Um, that's always been a possibility in in the minds of、uh, China's strategic planners. So、um, this is why you see even going back into the nineties,、um, this really strong emphasis on indigenization, self sufficiency,、uh, building up、um, your own domestic capacity. Right is is precisely because、um, they've always considered this a possibility. I mean, they kind of saw this happen. With Japan earlier, for example,、um, so so, and they experienced it themselves after the Tiananmen embargo. When、um, in the eighties, they were getting a lot of assistance from the U.S. on technological development as part of their kind of you know pseudo alliance against the Soviet Union. But when Tiananmen happened, obviously、um, a whole bunch of technology bans were kind of slapped onto China to prevent them from developing militarily um, and. Um, y- Um, even back in the '90s, you saw a lot of this discussion about dual-use military civil technology and pre- prevent attempts to prevent China from getting their hold on these types of technologies. And oftentimes, they came in the form of,、uh, you know, aerospace、um, 
in tech from the aerospace industry, technology from the semiconductors industry. So, so this is not new for China, right? This is this is something that they've had experience before at a different level, obviously, than they're experiencing now. Um, so for China, a lot of what they're doing to kind of offset these bans is less about reacting to a specific moment and much more about kind of building on the strengths and the the kinds of efforts that they've been sustaining for over two or three decades now. So, so that's kind of really important to understand. So um, specifically with the SMIC ban, even before, um, even before um, Trump kind of came in and then started hitting SMIC on, on its access to U.S. equipment makers for us, the semiconductors industry, uh, they were already talking about um, trying to find local suppliers and uh, alternative suppliers from American companies. So a, a kind of effort to de-Americanize their supply chain, right? And this actually started, this conversation kind of started heating up um, all the way back in the ZTE ban, I think, which was what, two years ago? Um, was that in 2018 or 2019? Do you remember, Carl? Uh, I, I don't remember exact date, but it's around that time frame. It's just, right. yeah. Right. So so like, so like there was already kind of, active kind of um, discussion uh, discussions about how to kind of subvert these types of efforts. So I don't think the SMIC ban really came as a surprise to anyone, you know, and um, like what, what you sh- what should expect to see is more discussions about, um, you know, shifting away the supply chain, um, finding more indigenous suppliers, um, which actually there are, there are a lot of upstarts in China that are looking to break into the market, but haven't been able to find opportunities to do so because, um, because if you're a company like SMIC, your, your goal is reliability, it's a cost efficiency, it's risk reduction, right? And that tends to not favor um, new, uh, new entrants um, who want to kind of take advantage of these opportunities, right? You're, you're usually going with, you know, reliable, established um players in the market like um which tend to be foreign for obvious reasons so so like now now you're kind of going to see a shift away from foreign suppliers and more towards domestic suppliers more as a risk mitigation strategy and and it'll it'll come with its own costs right um you're you're going to get lower quality um supplies and low lower quality parts of the uh, components of, of 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 their production process um when you when you kind of shift over to domestic companies because they just have less experience, right? They haven't been at this long enough. They haven't really had the opportunities to really improve um, the quality of the products. But um, at the same time, because now they're given the opportunity, they're going to improve on their process as they go, right? This is one of those industries where you have to learn by doing. And so- Now I have a question mm-hmm. I'd like to interject if I may. Mm-hmm. Um, so- now the semiconductor space is something that China actually tried to replicate a long time ago, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, SMIC uh, actually was set up in early two thousand to basically China's effort to lure talent from Taiwan from the mm-hmm. Taiwan Semiconductor, the TSMC, right? The founder mm-hmm. of SMIC was uh, was one time employee at uh, TSMC, mm-hmm. and so it's been twenty years, right? That you know China has been playing catch up mm-hmm. in the semiconductor space. Now, why, I mean, I'm sure, you know, China has plowed into a lot of money and investment into this, mm-hmm. but why is it that in the last 20 years, you know, China hasn't really fully caught up, right? I mean, like SMIC is not stu- still not 
like some some even say SMIC is a couple generations behind the most cutting edge like TSMC capability. Right, and and so I think it's really important to understand how this industry works overall. Um, I, I think the first thing to keep in mind is that it's not that ch uh, as China has kind of kind of been putting pull, putting money into developing their own semiconductor industries, right, that they're not making progress, right? They are making a lot of progress. And actually, they've been able to close the gap from maybe four to five generations behind to about two to three generations behind in the last 20 years. Um, but it's important to remember this industry moves very quickly. I mean, it's very rare that you find a technology industry that moves in two to two, three year cycles, right? Um, but every two, three years, you kind of have this improvement in um, what we call the process node, right? That the, the the ability to make smaller and smaller transistors, right? To to kind of etch etch into silicon smaller and smaller features. And so um, what? So what's happened with China's efforts is that for the last 20 years, they've mostly been trying to find opportunities to break into the market to compete against the big players, the established players, um, oftentimes, you know, American, but also now Taiwanese, Korean, and even Japanese. And the, and the reason that it's taking so long is because every single time um, China is able to catch up to one node, the industry's moved on to another node, right? And so that that's kind of partially why you see China still behind is because, um, is because the the amount of effort it takes to um, to kind of keep up 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 to speed with everything that's going on really makes it hard to um, find customers, right? Like if you're if you're um, if you're if you're a, a chip if you're a chip designer and you're looking for someone to fabricate your chips, right? And then you have a Chinese company company offering, offering you the 14 nanometer process node, and you have like a Taiwanese or a Korean company offering you that 14 nanometer process node, right? Um, unless you are trying to save money, you're going to go with the more experienced player because they're going to be able to produce the product more reliably. So so for China, the, the breakthrough barrier has never really been the basic capabilities. Um, if you look at what they're generating in research, you can tell that in research, they're able to do a lot of the same technical capabilities that um, that uh, other countries are able to do. But the, the problem for them is doing it at scale. And to do it at scale, you need capital, right? You need money. But then you also need customers who are willing to take the risk of, of like using your pro production process. Uh, and which then, you know, um, Means that you're 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 having you're going to have trouble breaking through into the market, even though you have the basic technical capability to you know to produce you know the the quality of technology that that you know your that that your competitors can right. So so for China, it's not a it's not a basic capabilities issue. It's it's a business issue. It's a it's a business um it's a business reliability issue. And and so. So for my audience, you know, who may not be uh, as tuned in in the tech space, so that that's basically Huawei to produce the latest consumer uh, phone. Mm -hmm. They would probably make the decision to say use a Qualcomm chips that's designed in U.S. but manufactured in Taiwan. Uh, then go with SMIC if they have, you know, if they 
they know they could uh, count reliably on the supplies from Qualcomm and from Taiwan of higher quality uh, from established players, right? Rather than take the risk with SMIC, which right. is a latecomer. That, that's what right. you're saying, right? Right. That's basically what I'm saying. And you actually see this with, with how Huawei tried to attack the phone market, right? Earlier on, they kind of started with Qualcomm chips. And then they've had to invest in their own chip design arm, right? The um, high silicon, right? And through high silicon, once that once their chip design arm had kind of matured and was able to offer competitive chips, um, they naturally shifted towards their own in-house chip design. But they still had to outsource the um, they still had to outsource the production to TSMC, which had the most advanced um, manufacturing capabilities for chips, right? And so. Um, so, so, you know, in order for uh, Huawei to want to gamble on an SMIC, right, SMIC needs to be able to do two things. One, it needs to be able to show that, hey, we have a production line um, at, you know, the specific advanced node that you need ready, which, you know, China's still not quite at yet um, for a number of reasons that have to do with um, their um, kind of um, their access to equipment and then their ability to master that equipment and their ability to kind of um, keep up with the research level of, of, of the cutting edge using that, that equipment. Right. So, so there's, there's kind of complexity in the, in the process side that, that um, they need to figure out how to do at scale. Right. It's not just about making a handful of chips at like five, five nanometers or seven nanometers. Right or 10 nanometers. It's about, can we make billions and billions and billions of these chips, uh, you know, on time, you know, reliably with high quality and yield efficiencies so that we can actually make money so that we can fill orders, right? And I think that's the part that China's kind of struggling with. And it comes down again to, you know, whether you can get customers to, to kind of give you the chance to get the practice in, right? And so if if you're um if you're SMIC, your strategy is not to try to attack the most leading edge node. Your strategy is I need to build up a workforce that is um, capable enough to reliably reproduce these processes as we develop them, right? So right now what I want to do is I want to go with a simpler, less advanced um, process so that I can build up my workforce, build up my human capital. You know, um, you know, in, in China, right? A lot of electrical engineers and you know, material material science engineers, they're they're on the much younger end of the scale because you know, China has only kind of had um, had a lot of China's like um, most recent uh, a lot of China's like uh, engineering grads are uh, you know are are more recent, right? Like China didn't used to have as many engineering grads as it does today, right? So so your strategy is. How do I build up my human capital? The best way to build up my human capital is one to try to take a mature a mature work uh, process and develop the mature work uh, process with you know my younger you know human capital, um, so that you know I can build up their experience, so that I can build up their skills. Two, attack a, a part of the business that is um, lower risk, that's easier to get customers with. Um, that you can kind of do more cheaply because if you're using if if you're um, if you're building a business around say uh, 14 nanometers or 28 nanometers or even 48 nanometers 48 nanometers right what you're doing is you're basically um, 
creating a foothold in the market because there are more people who are willing to take risks at these mature nodes, knowing that, you know, that the, that the knowledge for how to do this stuff is much, much older, right? It's much more um, tested um, and build your business that way. And once you've kind of gotten market share that way, then you can start to be more aggressive about attacking the cutting edge, right? So um, SMIC has only been at this for about 15 years or so, right? And they've only really been able to get a foothold the last maybe five to 10 years. And, and so it, it's very normal for a company like SMIC to, to kind of take its time to build up its capital, to build up its workforce, build up its capabilities, build up its facility, build up its experience. And then only after they've done all that, do they really kind of speed up their development cycle and really kind of chase the leading edge. And you see this strategy with companies like TSMC as well and Samsung, right? Samsung and TSMC were not at the cutting edge when they started. They were actually about two to three generations behind as well. And they used this exact same strategy. They kind of leveraged the, the business of older nodes, which had larger markets because, you know, a lot more chip design companies who aren't trying to look for the absolute top line in performance, they're just um, trying to build a business off of a specific set of applications that, you know, that aren't in, that aren't with like smartphones or servers or uh, personal computers. Right. Um, you know, those, those companies will tend to go with older, no older nodes again, to reduce risk and to kind of, because they also, because they don't just don't need to kind of eat those costs in order to get the capabilities they need. Right. And so if you're, if you're an upstart, you tend to go with these older technologies and to build up your foundation first. And once you've built up the foundation, then you attack, you know, you, you attack the, the more leading edge stuff. So it's very normal for t a company like SMIC to be two or three generations behind while they're still building their foothold, right? And, and th that's kind of essentially what you're seeing right now is that's that's the stage that the Chinese semiconductors industry is in right now is, is they're still building up their market share, right? They're still trying to build up the private private sector resources necessary to fund, you know, your, your, your leading edge efforts. If, if you don't have that capital, it doesn't matter how much you try to leapfrog, right? You're just not going to have the resources to sustain that effort. So, so, you know, you have to build these things sustainably. And then that's kind of what a company like SMIC has been doing. And that's why they're, you know, they look like they're two or three generations behind. The gap is not as hard to close as it looks, but you need to have all your fundamentals down before you can kind of close the gap. So that, that, that's, what we're seeing right now. Do you think they have the fundamentals done right now? Um, I think that if we were operating in a world without tech bans, SMIC probably would have been maybe five to 10 years away from catching up to the leading edge. Um, and I say that because if you looked at what they were doing about two years back, right, they were also, they were also on the market for, uh, you know, extreme ultraviolet photolithography, right? So they were clearly trying to do research on uh, process nodes for, you know, um, seven nanometers, five nanometers and below. And um, it, it seemed like they were confident enough to kind of really start pushing a much more aggressive schedule, which is why you saw, you know, last year, their announcement of their uh, N plus one process node, which is roughly, I think, an eight to 10 nanometer process node from the information that's publicly available. And then, you know, a year afterwards to jump right into seven nanometers, right? And obviously, um, by 2022, you're talking about TSMC at potentially four nanometers or even three nanometers, um, depending on how their research goes and whether they hit any kind of um, snags in, in their development process, right? But... Um, I have a yeah. question. 
Mm-hmm. I have another question because mm-hmm. because the proponent of the Trump tech war against mm-hmm. China are actually saying that uh, it, this is exactly the reason we need to you know right. put sanction on China mm-hmm. right now because China has been building its indigenous capabilities and what they're going to do is just they're going to eat our lunch if we let this process continue because you know China has been. Gaining the the the, the technical know hows and they're eroding our you know American tech technology edge, mm-hmm. right? And if we allow the process, uh, you know, to to continue naturally without interference, uh, then you know China is just gonna accrue enough technical skills that they will be able to cut out uh, U.S. altogether right. eventually, mm-hmm. right? Right, and so, and that's that, sorry. Go ahead. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, and like that, that's kind of the thing, right, is um, they're actually, I think they're more or less right about the fundamental argument, which is that, yes, China is kind of building up its technical capabilities. But I, I think that their, their, their idea of how to kind of compete against this is, you know, a bit, you know, naive, maybe even foolhardy, because the they're not, they're not really grasping the fundamentals that are driving tech China's ability to kind of take the leading edge, right? They do recognize, obviously, that for a company like SMIC, there's a heavy reliance on American suppliers. Um, but they see this as a threat to American industry, when in fact, it's actually America's strongest foothold in kind of benefiting from China's own technical technological development, right? Because the way the way this works is this, is if a Chinese fabrication company like SMIC um, wants to chase the leading edge and they're able to use foreign, you know, equipment in order to do so, right. In order to build on, to, to kind of build their own chip fabrication facilities to kind of, you know, try to capture the leading edge of the market, then they're going to go with, you know, much more reliable foreign suppliers over domestic suppliers. And for the last 10 to 15 years, you know, this has been what's suppressing China's ability to build the semi its semiconductors industry upstream, right? When you look at when you look at how China's semiconductors industry is being built, it's being built downstream. Basically, for any new opportunity like AI chips, chip design, right? China's kind of jumped in and tried to like, you know, compete from that and it, from 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 that level. And it's actually been very successful at doing so. But it's doing so by by kind of working off of the globally accessible foundation of foreign technology. And if you're SMIC, it's the exact same story, right? Maybe you're f- further upstream from the chip design um, level of the of the semiconductor stack, but you know, still you're depending on Japanese suppliers, American suppliers, um, European suppliers to kind of build your facilities. And so, um, if China were to build up its semiconductors industry this way, this would be a win-win situation. American suppliers get business and kind of lock in their foothold you know, with another country's semiconductors industry at the thing, when the things that they're good at, which is building the basic equipment for fabricating chips. And Chinese suppliers end up kind of occupying another section of the, uh, of the full stack of different um, inputs that you need in order to build, to make a semiconductors industry. And then they're able to kind of benefit off of that. And this is actually very mutually beneficial. It's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's a symbiotic process, and uh, and you know, and you see this with the U.S.'s relationship to Taiwan's industry, the U.S.'s relationship to um, Korea's industry, 
the U.S.'s relationship to Japan's industry and to Europe's industry, right? Um, so this would actually be good for America, right? Like the, the idea of like American suppliers be having like a, a a very reliable, solid, you know, you know, evergreen business, so to speak. But you know, because the Trump administration is trying to seems to be trying to suppress China's technology efforts of broad base, right? To just kind of cut it off at its knees, you know, to kind of just kill the industry outright. What they're actually doing is they're creating now an opportunity for these Chinese um, companies that were trying to build the biz their business upstream from SMIC, from High Silicon, right? Um, who are trying to build their own equipments business in China, right? These Chinese suppliers all of a sudden have a captive market. They now have the opportunity to really kind of build their experience and then become competitors. And actually, a lot of American uh, semiconductors equipment companies are very nervous about this because they know how this works. They know that if China's massive semiconductors market starts to go towards domestic suppliers for upstream equipment, then that will lock out American businesses. So this is actually backfiring. This this tech ban is actually actually has the potential to backfire immensely on U.S. companies, right? And, and a lot of American companies know this, which is why they're very uncomfortable with these bans. Um, so like the, the, the key problem that the Trump administration does not seem to understand is that the way that China's been able to climb the tech ladder is by building up its fundamentals, right? Like it, in China, it's not just the flashy stuff you see on the surface about SMIC starting to catch up, you know, to you know, TSMC in, in, you know, in its fabrication abilities or at high silicon, you know, catching up in design with Apple and, you know, Intel, right. Um, or, you know, Qualcomm, right. Like it's, you know, what, what's really creating China's like ability to climb the tech ladder is, is the amount of effort they're investing into, you know, human capital, right. Into higher education, to STEM education, into um, their research institutes, right. In their colleges and their state-owned enterprises, right. And their uh, military industrial complex, um, and their private companies, right? Like that's the that's the foundation for China's you know ability to climb the tech ladder, right? And so you can't you, you can't undermine that unless you're able to kind of stop Chinese people from going to college, right? <laughs> like if you can stop you know people in China from graduating into you know a STEM field and then you know having the human capital to really develop and innovate um, new technologies then you're not going to be able to stop this. The way to win a tech war is not by is not by trying to undercut your opponent. It's by trying to move faster than your opponent. If you try to undercut your opponent, you know, but your opponent is able to build up on their fundamentals, you know, outside of your ability to control that, then you know, it doesn't matter how much you try to under, undercut them with the leverage points that you have, right? With with your market leverage, with the suppliers that you have, you know, um, for the for this other country, the 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 thing that you know the thing that the U.S. needs to do if it wants to be able to keep up keep pace with China or to you know um, to out innovate China is by doing the same thing China is doing, which is investing in research and development, investing in higher ed, investing in STEM education, um, generating you know as as much you know as much talent as as possible, and then funding that talent to kind of attack the market. Right. So, so, you know, these bans are going to hurt, like no doubt about it. If you're SMIC, th these, this kind of ban will probably set you back at least one or two years, potentially even three to five years. But in that 10 to 15 year, like, you know, window of time, you're not really worried because right now you're looking at your fundamentals and you're looking at the direction the market's going. And it's very clear that sooner or later, you're going to be able to, you know, do everything on your own 
And you know, now if you're a Chinese equipment supplier, um, you know, you you feel the exact same way because now you don't have to compete against you know the AS ASMLs and the LAM, you know, the LAM, you know, equipment um, applied materials and LAM research, right? Like you can build your own equipment. You have a captive market because your Chinese, you know, up downstream uh, companies like SMIC, they can't access American equipment anymore. And, you know, you're going to build up your competences. You now can kind of hire and pay well, you know, all these graduates that you want, you wanted or needed in order to build your business to, to attack the most advanced part of of, of this tech stack, right? So, 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 yeah, like that. That's kind of what what we're going to end up with. Is it's it's not it's not that the Trump administration is wrong about how China's been able to develop their tech their, their tech industry and to kind of you know to kind of catch up to the rest of the world. What they're really wrong about is the reasons why China's been able to do so, and then also how does America you know, keep up with China or how does America keep its advantages against China? Because you're, you know, like all you're doing is actually strengthening China in the long run, even if, even if you're hurting them on the short run, right? I have mm -hmm. another question because um, you mentioned one of the reasons China was able to get ahead is building up its fundamentals by co uh, concentrating on STEM field and mm -hmm. graduating a lot of, uh, you know, college grads major in uh, science and technology. Now, isn't that the same thing was happening in India? I mean, India produced a tons of, you know, graduates in STEM as well. Mm -hmm. Many of them are in U.S., as a matter of fact, you know, mm -hmm. working in the U.S. tech industry. So how come India, uh, you know, was not able to do what China did? Well, I think it's, you know, in a, the, innovation, the innovation game needs two fundamentals in order to really kind of, you know, to kind of be competitive, to kind of drive itself, right? Um the first fundamental is obviously human capital, right? You need to have a lot of graduates, you know, to kind of work on, you know, these different technical problems to explore the kind of solution space of science and engineering. And um, like the innovation game is really straightforward in a lot of ways, right? You have, you know, in the physical world, you have, you know, a bounded space of possible permutations of, of, of physical forces and uh, physical elements, right? Physical, you know, components of, of the world. And, you know, you need to kind of, you need to try a whole bunch of different combinations to find the ones that fit the set of problems you're trying to solve, you know, with your technology. And so if you have more people, um, well, you're going to be able to attack that space a lot better, a better, right? If you have a higher quality of, if you have high quality talent, you're going to be able to attack that space a lot better and a lot quicker, right? And so basically that's one plank of the human innovation, uh, of the innovation game, which is the human capital component. The second component though, is that you actually need capital in order to play the innovation game, right? Like you need to be able to fund, you know, these people to kind of explore the science and technology space to kind of to explore new solutions, to try out different things, um, you know, to try different combinations of, of the physical forces and physical components of the world that, that you're trying to kind of manipulate into a technical solution. And so um, what China has been able to do really well that India hasn't been able to figure out so far yet is that China has been able to build, um, China has been able to build up its capital, right? It's been able to build up its economy, right? Um, China's entire efforts to kind of improve its its technological capabilities is is built on 
the success of its of its economy. The more money China is able to generate, the more it can fund, the more it can support, you know, more people to pursue science and engineering, right? Um, and so that that's why you don't see India kind of attacking the space nearly as quickly as China is. That India doesn't have China's capital advantage. India's economy hasn't developed enough um, capital surplus in order to kind of really effectively distribute that capital surplus, surplus to attack the next level of the value chain. Um, and so, so like that, that's really why, right? And, and like to kind of expand this out a bit, right? To kind of, kind of expand this picture out a bit. Um, there's like the stereotype of the Soviet Union be losing its ability to innovate and losing its ability and not, and not being as, you know, good with technology as, as the Western world. But the reality of the, of the Soviet Union was that it's not that this was not an innovative system. The Soviets were incredibly innovative in science and technology. They were able to, you know, do, they were able to do some things even in the 80s when their system was kind of in decline um, that, you know, s- you know, still surprise, you know, science and engineers in the Western world to this, this day, right? Um, like, uh, for example, like the idea of like, you know, radar, uh, radar evasing, evading planes, right? The theory for that came from the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union's problem was not um, was not that it wasn't innovative in terms of its human capital. The Soviet Union's problem was that their economic system didn't generate enough surplus in order to support all their innovation efforts. So they ended up having to take shortcuts, which compromised the quality of their technology. But there's not a single Soviet engineer who didn't know that they were basically kind of shorthanding the full capabilities and potentials of their own innovation, innovative abilities because they were kind of a poor country, right? A poor system. So, so you can kind of draw the same analogy to India and China, not so much in terms of saying that India's economy is like the Soviet economy, but in terms of recognizing that just because you generate the human capital, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be able to um, start the flywheel of innovation that lets you innovate faster because you also need a efficient economic system that generates you the human, the, 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 the capital surplus, right? The material surplus to support, you know, people to, to kind of, um, to kind of invest in, in, in technology, technological development, right? So, so that's, that's kind of why India hasn't really caught on to China now, right? Like if India can figure out its economy and is able, if, if they can kind of start to make their economy more efficient, generate more surplus and really kind of be able to, grow their GDP to the extent that China has been able to, then we really should expect India's technology to, to kind of catch up as well. It's just that, you know, that's not really the case as it is, right? I think that's a very good argument. And also, uh, you brought, as a tangent, you also brought up the fact that, uh, which is often ignored, that U.S. actually benefited greatly from technology and talent from, you know, other parts of the world. You know, first, mm-hmm. you know, after the defeat, after uh, World War II or during World War II, you know, U.S. received that infusion of talent and technology from Nazi Germany. And mm-hmm. then in 1990s, after the collapse of Soviet Union, it, it got an additional boost from all these uh Mm-hmm. STEM, uh, STEM people f- from the former Soviet Union coming to U.S. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, you, you, that's how how U.S. really benefited. And mm-hmm. and 
and you know also India, you know, U.S. was able to uh, basically leverage the talent, human capitals from India the way the Indian economy couldn't effectively uh, do it on its own. So, so, so U.S. in many ways benefited, and and even the you know the the Chinese human capital since yes. the nineteen eighties, a lot of Chinese students came to U.S. and they stay and contributed to. The, the STEM research and also uh, work in the U.S. tech industry. And, mm-hmm. and now what Trump uh, admin is actually doing is, uh, is shutting that down, right? Yep. Now we are we're seeing all these uh, uh, the new legislations just making it harder and harder for, for Chinese students uh, to come to study in U.S. and to, for Chinese researchers to work in the U.S. In- institutions. Yep. We're seeing uh, basically a witch hunt of, <laughs> of the Chinese researchers, you know, even in like cancer research field, which is totally mm-hmm. ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do want to get back to the uh, the, the the. I guess it was it was trying to ask is how you know what did China do differently from India that it was able to um, effect, effectively develop its economy to 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 drive the surplus to fund its own research, right? Because China and India. Oh, that's that's my puppy. So you know, my puppy always wanted to add some colors in the midst of my podcast. Um, I mean, what I you know, I came from. I grew up in China in 1980s. I remember at that time, China and India are about the same level of development, at least in terms of you know GDP per capita, right? I mean, the, the China didn't surpass India in terms of GDP per capita. I think like until 90s, like after I already left China. Um, so so what what did China? What was China able to do successfully in the last 30 years that, you know, India hasn't quite figured out yet? So I, I think that it, I, I'm actually not that, um, I'm not, I don't have a very deep knowledge of how the Indian economy works. Like I, I understand, I know, I know some things from college classes and all that stuff, but it's not really my field of expertise. That's but fine. Let's talk about China. But generally what China did really well in the, um, what China did really well in the 90s and early 2000s was that, um, one, they were able to kind of reorganize their factors of production um, away from um, away from really inefficient um, state this the really inefficient state owned system. Right. And, and like there are parts of the US Chinese state owned system that are very efficient and very effective. But, you know, the. Generally speaking, in the '90s economy in China was mo- was majority state owned and also um, was you know not really responsive to uh, market signals, right? Performance signals, so to speak, right? Um, the state owned system was more of a giant welfare system than it was a production system, and so um, one thing China ha- had to do in the '90s was they basically had to slowly but surely introduce more market signals into their economy. Um, dismantle um, state-owned assets that were non-performative, right? That were not generating more production than they were inputting into the into the production process. Um, and so the, they did this massive reorganization uh, of their factors of production, right? And th- we remember this as you know the breaking of the iron rice bowl because a lot of people got unemployed. But you know, the, the part of the unemployment process was you know identifying that you know the way that human employment was being used before was not efficient and you know they really needed to they really needed to kind of re, re restructure and reorganize where human human capital was being used in order to kind of generate more production the second thing they did was that they kind of needed a, a demand signal to really kind of steer the economy to 
push the economy towards um, towards kind of competing um, competing against you know competing against industries outside of China that that were able to perform better, and this would force companies and organizations to in, in adopt more learning to um, to basically you know to basically. What's I think what I'm trying to get uh, drive at is, uh, you know, I'm trying to figure out how China climbs the technolo- right, technology right. thing, right? Because right. Uh, I remember in the 1980s, I love to talk about 1980s because nobody can challenge me. Uh, <laughs> <I'm> actually, <laughs> wait, wait, you, you, you were in China in 1980s? I was, well, no, I was born in 89. So, um, oh, come on. That, that doesn't count. That's like the late. I, I remember what it was like in the early 90s. Like, so. so. Like it's close enough. Things really hadn't taken off in the early nineties. <laughs> like I said, nobody can challenge me in the nineteen eighties just because I, I'm around uh, long enough. But uh, I, what I remember was that uh, you know back then China couldn't even produce. Uh, a lot of the basic consumer goods, right? Like for for tra- transistor radio, it was import from Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, and and for you know for a while, my my family, our, our first uh, color television, it was a Japanese import. We, you know, yeah. back then there were no Chinese. Uh, there were no Chinese import. Um, of of, uh, of of I mean, no Chinese domestic production mm-hmm. of color television and fridge, but that gradually start to happen. You know, China set up a joint adventure with I think right. higher right. They they set up a, a joint venture with German German company that start producing the higher uh, refrigerators. That all happened in like late late eighties. So so it, it happened in a gradual process, and then China moved from like making shoes and toys to make more sophisticated electric. Good, right. right. So that that's kind of what I was trying to get at, right? Is that you know, in order to kind of have this process, you 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 need to kind of do what's called uh, industrial disciplining, right? Like um, market disciplining, and and the way that you know the way that you know you do that is by pitting pitting your organizations, your 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 firms, your companies against competition that kind of give you a guidepost for what you need to do in terms of performance, right? And that that alone is not enough. That's just the incentives piece of it, right? So you have the factor the factor uh, input piece of it, which is the the kind of the human capital, the resources, how you organize all that. And um, that that piece had to be reconfigured. And then you had to reconfigure, you know, how these companies thought about what what you know what their performance you know what they measured their performance against right and then finally the last piece and this is the piece i think you're trying to get at uh, most which is really important which is that there was a really clear understanding that china needed to build up its basic you know um basic knowledge right it's 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 knowledge of how these technologies worked it's knowledge of of math and science it's knowledge of engineering and and so um you know, part of this was the joint venture, you know, system where, you know, in order where they set up a deal where, hey, if you want to come in to China and take advantage of China's low cost labor, right, you have to do these IP transfers, right? You have to share your IP knowledge, right? And so that was one of many ways in which China was trying to accumulate IP, right, in order to, you know, in order to be able to have the knowledge to be able to even compete, right? So that that was that was also um, that was a really big piece of it. The other thing that China did was when they kind of started when the economy really did start to grow, they started to invest a whole lot more on education, right? Um, and this is something I was looking into the last couple of days. But you know, um, th- 
in the early, in the in the mid '90s, they had the two on one project, um, which was uh, an initiative to essentially um, build up the kind of research capacity of of you know of all the technical co colleges and universities in, in China, right? And so they kind of invested a whole lot of money on in terms of building up the capacity of their universities in terms of increasing the number of graduates in terms of increasing research opportunities for these graduates um when they kind of um when they kind of were able to start you know accumulating capital from you know their global export business so 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 that's kind of like the the, the trifecta of different forces that really helped china you know climb the technology ladder right is that it, it really came down to uh, reorganizing your your factor inputs um Finding global global markets that would discipline, you know, that would one create demand for your your companies, but to create export discipline, right? Create the ability to, you know, um, pursue higher quality in, instead of just producing more stuff, so that so that you know you are improving your processes, not just making more of the same crappy stuff. And then finally, um, IP transfers of any form, right? Sometimes of the kind of more shady, illegal form, but sometimes, you know, in terms of formal business deals with companies, right? To try to, you know, set up a quid pro quo, essentially, a, a way to kind of say, hey, if you want to build your factory here, you have to give us something in exchange, right? Which turned out to be a lot of technical knowledge. So, so you know, and then, and of, of course, like you, you take all of that and then you invest that into your own um, domestic human capital projects, right? You, you invest that into technology, into te technological research, science and development, um, your university systems. And so like, that's kind of what China was able to do. So, um, and I think, I think with what you're seeing in India is that you're seeing some kind of, you're seeing, you're seeing gaps in all three of these, right? Um, on one hand, you know, you don't have very efficient Factors of production in India, right? There, there have been effort, efforts to try to re reorganize India in industry into um, into into more efficient schemes, but you know, there's a lot of there are a lot of like um, oligopolies and monopolies and like very powerful entrenched interests who are always seeking rents out of this process. So that kind of inhibits their ability to to kind of accumulate capital effectively. Um, you don't see India. Um, kind of configuring its uh, economy towards exports, so therefore a lot of their demand is kind of um, is kind of internally oriented. It's domestic, and obviously they have been making efforts to kind of grow their export business, but you know it hasn't really taken off the way that it has for China. And then um, you know on IP, obviously India you know does what every poor country does. They they act actively try to acquire IP by any means necessary. Um, but if you don't have the efficient economy to really generate the capital to support these efforts, then you're just never going to be able to accelerate those efforts fast enough in order to really kind of get to like this, you know, get, get to like a, you know, get to a break breakthrough velocity, so to speak. So, so that, that's kind of why, you know, you're seeing differences with China and India is because um, th there are these basic uh, developmental factors that China has been able to kind of execute on a lot more effectively. And, you know, um, again, if, if India were able to kind of do, you know, execute on these pieces more efficiently and more effectively, and were able to really transform their economy to be able to generate more capital more quickly, then we should expect India to, you know, perform like China. But that that's not what we're seeing right now. 
that's very very good i think uh, comparison between the two uh mm -hmm. developmental economies but i want to bring back uh to united states because mm -hmm. one of the um you know you talk about technology transfer right that's mm -hmm. it is always like a point of contention between mm -hmm. us and china and now a lot of the proponents of the trump ban on chinese companies is saying well look you know like the us companies are being banned in china you know the us company had to give up their ip in a forced ip transfer when they want to do business in china right like so us is perfectly within its own right to basically have national sovereignty to force uh you know to to basically input limitation on the chinese companies in us because now now what they're saying is you know look like the, china put all these restrictions on american companies in turn the mm -hmm. chinese market uh whereas you know these chinese companies like tiktok have like basically free access to our market our system and profiting from that it's not fair so 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 what trump is doing is actually readdressing the the imbalance right how what do you say to that well i mean it's you know there there's a two-way imbalance here right which is that one you know you can on principle say that well in order for in order for um, American companies to feel like they're playing fairly against Chinese companies, China should also, you know, chi if China's stealing American IPs or is, is borrowing from American IPs, America should have access to Chinese IPs, right? But but the reality is that you know if you're if you're the country that's behind, you have less IP to share, right? Um, and so American businesses have tried to leverage this by saying, well, instead of IP, give us market access, right? And if you're, the, if you're China, you don't want foreign companies to take over your domestic markets because what ends up happening is you lose control of your economy, but also you're not able to develop your own domestic industries, right? If you can't develop your domestic industries, how are you going to grow economically, right? And this is a very well-known problem um, for developing countries, which is why the WTO allows for developing countries to have things like uh, protectionist um, policies, tariffs, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's because they recognize there's a, there's a common recognition that, you know, for developing countries, they can't play on an even playing field with developed countries. And so it's almost unfair to hold them up to the, the same standard. Now, obviously, China is not quite at that level, at that lower level of development that it was 20 years ago. So there's a very strong case to be made that the, the kind of implicit rules that have governed the U.S.-Chinese economic relationship should be, you know, should be kind of re reset, right? Or, or like we, we should kind of um, rethink the terms, of the, the old terms of, of this relationship and kind of come up with new terms that are more befitting of the, the current realities. And I think there's a lot of merit to that. But it, it doesn't make sense, I think, to me at least, that um, the way you would do that is by trying to um, ban Chinese companies from participating in the U U.S. And, and it doesn't make sense in, in, two, in, in, two, in two ways. The first way it doesn't make sense is that well, you know, you as the U.S. company, you're supposed to be, you, as the United States, right, if you're arguing for global access, global integration, um, you're arguing for the, the, the merits of free trade, right, the merits of, of, 
of sharing your knowledge across different countries, societies, right? Um, sure, China may do its own thing and kind of restrict, you know, operations of U.S. companies. That does, but if you do what China is doing, what you're doing is you're validating China's argument. You are validating their point, right? But you know, it, it, when you're validating their point, you you don't really have a leg to stand on in terms of in terms of your um in terms of your principles anymore. And, and not only do you kind of compromise your principles, but you've essentially configured your entire economic system to follow this old set of principles. And before you even adapt, before you even, even try to adapt to a new set of principles, you're already kind of violating the old principles, right? So you're, you're forcing yourself to adapt to another country's set of principles without really doing the same things that country is doing in order to make those principles work for you, right? So this is why, like, you know, the tech bans look like really big own goals for the United States is because you you have these domestic companies that essentially depend on global sales in order to support your portion of, you know, the technology industries that you have in your, in, in your, in your country, right? Like you're hyper-specialized towards one part of the production uh, the production process, one part of the supply chain, and and you're essentially saying, oh, we're going to we're going to reciprocate China's uh, protectionist policies by incorporating our own protectionist policies. Um, but now, like in China, you have all these, you know, all the state, all these state efforts to to develop domestic champions, to develop domestic industries that can kind of plug in for foreign suppliers. But you don't have that in the United States. You don't have a program for that. So you you. You've tried to, you've tried to kind of, you've basically cut your nose to spite your face, essentially, right? And and, and that's why, like, it, the argument doesn't make sense in terms of what they're trying to do to, um, to kind of, to kind of demonstrate a reciprocal principle. Like at the end of the day, it's not whether the principles are fair; it's whether the principles work for you. And it doesn't seem to me that the way that the Trump administration has tried to level the playing field with China is actually working in the U.S.'s favor. It's not really working to the U.S.'s advantage, right? And it's not really trying to do anything to change the U.S.'s fundamentals so that it would work in the U.S.'s advantage. All it's doing is trying to kind of own China, so to speak, right? It's trying to make, it's trying to screw up China, but, you know, you're trying to screw up a country that's ready for this, right? But are you the country that's like trying to disrupt the, the the relationship? Are you really ready for this? It doesn't make sense to me. So this is a perfect segue to the next topic, which mm-hmm. is you know the the this, this U.S. China relationship since Nixon visited China in 1972 has been relatively stable. It's it's uh you know there there's some points of contention, but uh overall it's a relationship of uh, you know, coexistence, uh, if mm-hmm. not corrupt, outright cooperation, right? And, and we already talked about there were a period of active cooperation back in the 80s, you know, during the anti-Soviet days of late Cold War. Um, but you, after that, it was more of a of an economically mutual beneficial relationship, right? We're both both uh, benefited from trading with each other. Now, what Trump uh, has done is, uh, I mean, the, the U.S.-China tension always existed. I think it existed even, uh, you know, 
the you know back in the days of when Hillary was a Secretary of State, uh, you know back in 2011, 2012, when she stated the the pivot to Asia, when U.S. positioned more military asset to to the Asia Pacific region, I, I think it started there. But Trump really accelerated the process, and he took it uh, to a very drastic, sharp turn in this relationship. Uh, and 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 the, the the tech war is just one kind of one manifestation of that. Uh, now, how? So I I have talked to I have invited Mr. T previously uh, on Silk and Steel podcast to talk about this, and Mr. T is very pessimistic. Uh, you know, has a very pessimistic outlook on the future of the U.S. relationship, both in the tech space and also in the global geopolitical competition. Um, I know you have a, a slightly different take. <laughs> so so um, I'd like to get your take on, you know, where do you think this is going? You know, right now we are, a lot of people saying we're already in, uh, in an incipient Cold War 2.0, uh, right? And, and this is... Uh, and and Mr. T thinks it's gonna just get, this is just a beginning. It's gonna get worse. Now, what are your take on this? So I I don't completely disagree that it could get worse, right? I I think that the reality of the situation is that um that we're not going back to the old equilibrium of the U.S. and China relationship. Um, I I think that equilibrium is fundamentally broken. That equilibrium depended on. A implicit foundation of trust about where the boundaries of of hostilities could w- were drawn, right? And those boundaries have not just been like broken; they they've been completely blown by. So you know, there's just no there there isn't really the basis of trust necessary to take the U.S. and China back to where the relationship used to be, right? So we're going to need to adjust to a new normal. But I don't think that the natural results will be a free fall in the relationship that leads to, you know, a sustained Cold War. And the reason I don't think that is because, um, is because what Trump is doing right now is not really sustainable for the, for the United States, for U.S. businesses, right? If you look at the, if you look at the, the tech ban, right? It's not just hitting Chinese businesses. It's also hitting U.S. businesses. It's hitting, you know, European businesses and potentially even Japanese businesses. It's hitting Taiwanese businesses, right? Like what the U.S. is doing is it's trying to force the rest of the world to fundamentally decouple and dismantle um, the entire production supply chain of, of the technology industry that's been built up for 30 years and actually was working really well to everyone's benefit for 30 years. And that's not going to, that's not going to be taken very lightly. It's not going to, countries are not just going to accept that and roll over, right? They're going to try to adapt while maintaining all the things that worked for them before, because, you know, it wasn't broken for them. Um, So, so like that's going to create pressure to stabilize the situation, not just from other countries outside the U.S.-China dyad, but also with domestic com- companies inside the United States, domestic interests within the United States. So we're not going to see, you know, a return to the old normal, but we're also not going to go into, you know, a nihilistic descent into the abyss, right? Like China and the U.S. aren't just going to be lobbing nukes at each other 10 years from now. Like it- it's it's going to be a lot more kind of, Manage. There's a stabilization point here. Now, if Trump gets reelected, that 
argument could be a lot weaker. And the reason is because Trump is a very unpredictable uh, character. He's an actor who's not beholden to the logic and the interests of other parties. And so he could do a whole lot more damage in another four years. And if we get another four, four years of Trump, then maybe you know, Mr. T will end up being right about the state of the relationship. Maybe we will be in an irrecoverable kind of death spiral, so to speak. Um, but assuming that Trump doesn't win, right, assuming that Biden wins and the political situation in the United States stabilizes, um, you're going to see efforts, I think, to try to stabilize the situation, to break the freefall and to establish, you know, new sets of rules and new sets of principles between between the two sides. They may not be friendly principles, but they need to be manageable principles, right? They need to be principles that both countries agree to in, in on the terms, you know, to manage the relationship. And that's going to implicitly involve some, maybe not a full rollback, but at least some rollback of the very draconian measures that have kind of hit the US, you know, semiconductors industry, um, the US tech industry, hit, you know, um, tech industry, the tech industry of, of US partners and allies, right? Like, like these other countries are also looking at losses from this fight because when you're telling these countries that, you know, any from anywhere from 20 to 30, 20 to 50% of their sales with China are now in, invalid, right? They're in, they, they've been new, they've been neutralized by US tech bans. That's not really a great situation to put your domestic firms into, right? So, so, so I don't, I don't see, how this continues without at least some pushback. And I feel like the severity of the situation for other countries and you know even US tech companies, domestically speaking, the, the, the severity of the situation, the, the stakes at, at risk are high enough that the pushback will be significant, right? And if you're a Biden administration, you're probably going to be a lot more attentive and pliable to this sort of pressure than a Trump administration would be. So so it really depends on who wins in November. Um but I don't if 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 Trump ends up losing, I don't see the current course, you know, sustaining itself. At some point there will be a course correction. And it won't be a course correction back to how things used to be, but it also won't be, you know, just the, you know, the a, a nosedive into, you know, into the new cold war so to speak. So so that's kind of my views on this. Okay, um, that is very eloquently argued, but let me give you a little pushback, right? Mm -hmm. So right now, as we observe the Trump uh, policy on China gets more and more drastic. I mean, it, it looks like in the last few months of his uh, you know, pres presidency term here, he's trying to push out as much as anti-China, as much anti-China sanctions as possible, right? You know, we've seen with um, first ZTE, then Huawei, then uh, then uh, TikTok, right? Then WeChat, uh, and now SM SMIC. So, it, it it I mean, like I have not seen uh, any kind of meaningful pushback so far from the u.s business interest right because for for a long time u.s you know u.s business interest was the backer of the pro-engagement camp of the china debate but but for the last few years they have been relative the, the pro-engagement camp have been relatively silent right in the media what we see more and more is 
people arguing for decoupling or even taking decoupling as a, 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 a matter of fact, right? And 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 even I mean I I can see a Trump a, a Biden administration maybe would not push out even more um, anti-China measures, but you know I because I haven't seen a strong pushback from the U.S. companies and U.S. suppliers yet, so I I don't and and the fact that right now during the election year the rhetoric at least the rhetoric between the two parties who is tougher on China right <laughs> now this is a competition between Biden and and. Uh, and, and Trump to, to see who is tougher. So I, I, I don't see like kind of rollback of the policy already being put in place by Trump. So this is my pushback to you. So, and I think, I think those are fair pushbacks, but I think it's important to recognize that, um, you know, for example, when, when you had, when you had things like the ZTE ban, right. Or the, the Huawei ban, right. Um, you had, you know, these companies kind of argue, hey, don't don't pull this ban just yet. Like, you know, we are suppliers to these companies. We're going to get hurt by this, right? And and when that when that pushback was felt the first time around earlier on, um, you know, you did see kind of a bit of a pullback. You did see a slowdown in the the rate at which you know the administration was trying to push this stuff. Now, obviously, it's a, an election season, so the administration's going to, you know try to ratchet up the pressure, so to speak. And I think that's really what we've seen the last year or so is that because, you know, they're trying to generate a lot of noise to to kind of bring up their anti-China narrative, right, in order to try to win more votes and to lock down, you know, more support. Um, they, they've clearly, you know, um, stopped caring about the details, right? And you saw this with WeChat and TikTok, right, which are both now... Um, which are, you know, the, the bans of which are both now suspended because, you know, the, the, the legal basis by which they were kind of, they were kind of established are, are not, you know, are not necessarily sound, right? So, so like, so I think right now everyone recognizes that what we're seeing is an administration that is really, really desperate to, um, to try to, build up its credibilities as much as possible to kind of lock in as much damage as it can um, in terms of its China decoupling agenda. But I don't see a lot of really strong support for this. What I see are, what I think I see are a lot of companies that are kind of holding their gunpowder dry, right? They're, they're waiting, they're waiting out the situation because why, why stir a whole, why, why stir controversy and like create trouble for yourself? Um, you know, in this moment, in like in 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 this year, this year when you know the year next, the year afterwards, Trump might not be in office anymore, right? If Trump's not in office anymore, then you know you know it might be a lot easier to kind of get what you want without having to make everything into a fight. So so I think it's not really clear where the industry will go if Trump wins, but you know I do think that it's worth waiting to see what they do after the election has passed because um, companies are not going to, companies are fight, if companies are going to push back against these bans, right? They're not pushing back against these bans for China's sake. <laughs> they're not looking to kind of be champions for China, right? They're doing this for their own interests. So it, it makes no sense for them to fight these things 
when you know against the path of most resistance if they have an alternative path of least resistance so uh, my my thinking about this is really to just wait and see and and kind of see what happens with with these uh private sector interests these technology interests after the election has passed because there are a lot of reasons why they wouldn't you know make a big fuss about this during an election year right when do you think uh do you think is that is that what china is doing also because so far the chinese response to the trump sanction have been relatively muted I think I think with China, it, it's it's two things, right? One, it, it's partially a wait and see strategy as well, um, and um, I, I think that's probably wise, right? Because you don't want to do something extreme that you're going to have to regret later on with a, with a new administration that you may want to establish some, you know, some better rapport with. But I think with China, there's something else going on, which is they're not they're just they're doing things right. They're adapting to these bans. They're just not announcing it. And the reason they're not announcing it is because, you know, for for China, there's no point in turning this, you know, you know, a tech war into into something that, you know, that 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 they're going to showboat on because what matters is is ultimately are you able to build up your technology industry your technology capabilities are you able to grow these sectors to grow these businesses to kind of um leverage them to grow your economy right these are all very very like important basic things and they will speak for themselves if the efforts to adapt to the the, the new normal are successful um you know and and you don't want to make it a lot of noise because one if you're not if you kind of Go out there and declare that you're going to accomplish this this objective or that objective, um, and like you know, and and wean yourself off from American technology and build like you know your domestic sector to this level of success, and you don't manage to do it. Well, that that looks really bad, right? Not only does that look really bad, um, you know, you're also creating putting a target on your back. So so if you're China, it's not that you're not adapting to the situation. There's a lot of I think. Stuff going on in the background, you know, with in relation to hardening the in their tech ter, their tech industry against you know of uh, geopolitical vulnerabilities, but you're just you're just not going to make a lot of hay about it. You're not going to make a lot of noise about it because you know wh- why would you want that attention, right? It's the attention then that got you in trouble in the first place. So 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 like that you we shouldn't expect China to make. Grand, you know, grand pronouncements about what they're going to do because it's not the grand pronouncements that matter; it's the execution, and the execution will speak for itself if it's successful, right? And if it's not successful, you don't want too much attention drawn to it because then it, it will look really bad. And and so I don't know why what people are expecting out of China, but I don't think that we should expect, you know, anything that sounds too bombastic, right? Like it, it, it may be a good PR move, but I don't think it's actually. A good strategic move. So, yeah, that that's a good point because uh, before this, China had the Project Twenty Twenty Five, right, which mm-hmm. is aimed to you know promote uh, indigenization of uh, of uh, new technologies and and to move to the forefront uh, of the the, the 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 cutting edge, right, and that mm-hmm. became seized as a, a point by by by. The, the haters in U.S. to attack, right? Because a lot of the Trump anti-China policy is centered on how the uh, China's Project 2025, if allowed to fruition, will threaten 
the the American tech dominance, right? And why we must crush China now. Um, but what? Okay, so I I I think I agree with you in the long term. You know, China is probably be fine. You know, the 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 technological progress in China will continue because you know China has a solid foundation.、Mm-hmm. Now. In the short term, though, the the ban is gonna hurt. You know,、yeah. like how how、uh, you know, I I I'm I live in Indonesia.、Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, like which means、uh, the 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 marketplace for mobile phone is dominated by foreign brands, right? So、mm-hmm. I I see here in, everywhere you see is、uh, either Chinese brands or Samsung or iPhone, right? So it's either iPhone, Samsung, or Vivo, Oppo, Xiaomi.、Mm-hmm. Uh, now, what has been absent in last year that was I was here with, is Huawei. Now, like、mm-hmm. the, a lot of Huawei phone has been taken off the shelf.、Mm-hmm. Uh, like like you you, can, you still see like other Chinese brand phone, Vivo, Oppo, Xiaomi, but but no no. No, Huawei is basically、mm-hmm. disappeared, right? So,、mm-hmm. so how is Huawei going to survive? I mean, in in this kind of、uh, environment when it's it's getting because pre- because I guess what I'm trying to、uh, ask is、uh, I'm trying to ask a couple of things here. <laughs>、mm-hmm. So, first, how is Huawei going to survive?、Uh, second, is do you think China will go ahead and and then build an independent Tech stack independent from the American platform because one of the reason Huawei is getting jacked、uh, not just from the chip but also because you know the Huawei phones the, the apps need to come either from the Google needs to come from the Google Store right so、mm-hmm. that that's、uh, that 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 will hurt them when U.S. can ban、uh, you know. Their interaction from Google, and、mm-hmm. not to mention that you know most Chinese phones are are Android based. So、mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so my question is: Is China going to build a, a fully independent tech stack? And if so, would they be able to pull it off? In the following bonus segment for my patrons on Patreon, we discuss the future of Huawei 5G, whether China will build its own independent tech stack. And whether internet will be split into two, as former Google CEO Eric Schmidt had predicted, into a Chinese-led and a U.S.-led versions within the next decade. To tune in, go to Patreon.com, search Silk and Steel podcast. For five dollars a month, you will receive premium patron-only contents like this, as well as early release episodes before they have been released to the public. Patreon is my main income stream right now. I'm putting a lot of effort putting together this podcast, and I do ask you for support. I hope you enjoy listening, and I hope you subscribe. Bye bye.